I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Our scripture reading today will be from John 5, verses 19 through 47. John chapter 5, verse 19 through 47. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing of my own accord. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word given to us. And Lord, we confess our desperate need for you, our desperate need for Lord Jesus, our Savior. And we thank you that through your word, you have told us exactly who you are and how we can have life in you. I pray that this morning, as we see your word, your son would be exalted in our church and that he would be exalted in our hearts through your word. We ask this 
in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I want to read a statement for you, and I want you to be thinking, as I do, whether you agree with it or disagree with it. And so here's the statement. Do, Do you agree or disagree with what I'm about to read? God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. That was one of the questions that was posed in the Ligonier's State of Theology survey that was taken last year. In it, they attempt to to figure out the theological temperature of Americans, and then you can more specify it to Christians in America. And this was one of the questions that was posed. They said, do you agree with this? Do you disagree with this? How strongly do you agree or disagree with such a statement? And unsurprisingly, the results were that the vast majority of Americans believe that statement is true. In fact, you would find fewer than one in four who would disagree with that statement, that God accepts the worship of all religions. You think, okay, well, that's not too surprising. What about evangelical Christians? Those would be people who run in much the same circles we run in here as a church. Okay, what about evangelical Christians? They found that over half of them in America agreed with that statement, that God accepts the worship of all religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. So maybe you're in one of those groups. Maybe you're thinking the same this morning. And you're like, well, I'm not really sure what's the big deal. I'm not really sure what's wrong with a statement like that. Well, if, if the way we tend to define religion is true, well, then there's nothing particularly wrong with that because the way that we often tend to think about religion in America is simply that it's a means of making me feel a little bit better. Maybe it makes me feel a little bit better about my life or about myself or just that it gives me a better life. And if, if that's the way that we think about religion, well, then sure, there's, then how could we say that there's only one right way to go about it? Because maybe something else will make you feel a little different way for a different person. So in that case, it's actually quite arrogant for someone to suggest that there is only one way to God, that he only accepts one way of worship in Christ Jesus, Christianity, and not the other religions. But that would all change if God himself were to show up and tell us how to get to him. See, in other words, you might believe he's done it, you might believe he hasn't done it, but if God were to show up and to say to you, this is who I am and how you can be right with me, all of that would change. And all of a sudden then, it would not be arrogance to suggest that there's only one right way to God, but it would actually be arrogance to say that that God doesn't know what he's talking about. And so the central question then is, okay, does God know what he's talking about? Then has God really said? Has God shown up and told us how to be right with him? These are the topics that we will be exploring this morning because it gets to the very heart of, okay, what is the authority of Jesus to speak these things? Can we trust him? And can we trust his word? Has God actually told us about these realities, or has he left us on our own? We will see that Jesus makes claims to authority that are quite audacious, that either he really is who he claims to be, or he's the most arrogant madman you've ever come across. And so the central question then arises at this point, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? In John chapter 5, let me remind you of where we've just been. We saw last week, Jesus healed a man who had been unable to walk for 38 years. He was laying in the pool of Bethesda, and he had been unable to walk. And Jesus shows up and says to him, get up, take your mat, and walk. It's an amazing miracle that has just happened, and yet there's a problem that comes with it, because this happened on the Sabbath. 
And the Jews had all sorts of laws that said, you cannot get up, take your bed, and walk on the Sabbath. And so now there's, now there's a problem. And so they say, well, well, who told you you can do this? And it's Jesus. And so now there are issues with Jesus because he has now told this man to break the Sabbath law that the Jews had. And so they, they come to Jesus and they're upset. And Jesus, in his defense, does not calm them down one bit. In fact, he fuels their anger all the more. He says this in verse 17. My father is working until now, and I am working. See, honoring the Sabbath was a command that was given by God. Because God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And so, too, should his people on the seventh day rest. There's a Sabbath pattern instituted for God's people that was commanded by God. And the Jews added all sorts of laws to what you can and cannot do on that day. But they also had a problem they had to figure out. Because, see, Christians and Jews do not believe that God is merely kind of just sitting back from his creation, but that he is intimately and personally involved with it. See, there, there are some people who would be called deists, which means that they believe in a God, and yet it's a God who is mostly impersonal and not really involved. He created all things, and he kind of set the universe in motion, but then he just kind of steps back and let it run on its own. But see, we as Christians don't believe that's the case. We believe God sustains and governs his universe, that he is directly and personally involved. In fact, Colossians says, in him, all things hold together. The book of Hebrews says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, which means that if God were to, even for a millisecond, stop upholding the universe, everything would collapse in upon itself. See, God is intimately involved with his creation. So, yes, God did rest on the seventh day, but there is a deeper sense in which God never rests from his work, but is always at work. And so the Jews came to the point where they said, okay, well, God obviously is exempt from all these Sabbath laws that we've got. And so here's what Jesus does. Jesus comes to them and says, you know how uh, the Father, God, he's exempt from those laws, you don't hold it against him that he's working on the Sabbath? Then you should do the same with me. I mean, do you, do you see the, the striking claim that he's making? He is saying, I'm God. Treat me like it. Verse 18 tells us, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, at the very heart of the Christian faith, at the very heart of the Christian church, is the central question, who is Jesus? Can we trust what he says? Is he really right in what he's saying here? Is he really, in fact, equal with God? This text is about the authority of Jesus. It shows us that he is the eternal son of the Father. He is the one who makes God known. He is the one who gives life. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. He says a similar thing in verse 30. You look at verse 30, he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, in verse 19, Jesus says, uh, I only do what I see the Father doing. In verse 30, he says, I only uh, judge what I hear my Father saying. Jesus does, hears, says exactly what the Father does and says. Think about how 
uh, when, when you see a young boy looking at his dad and how he will seek to imitate him. He wants to do what dad's doing. And Jesus says, the son of God does what he sees his father doing. It goes even deeper than that. What's this relationship between the father and the son? It's one of love. You see this in verse 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So not only is the son looking at his father and saying, I'm gonna do what my father's doing, so also is this relationship one of love, that the father has always been loving his son perfectly. Some of you know what it's like to say that of your earthly father. Some of you know what it's like to long for that in an earthly father. But the father, God, has always been perfectly loving his son. For all of eternity, Sometimes we can think of eternity moving forward, like eternal life forever is not going to have an end. But do you also think about eternity past, moving backward that has no beginning? God is uncreated. Father, Son, and Spirit. And for all of eternity, past, present, future, the Father has been loving His Son perfectly. It had no beginning, it will have no end. He didn't start one day and he will not stop one day. The father has always been loving his son. And verse 26, then jump down to verse 26. It says, as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. So not only does the son look at what his father's doing, not only is the son the object of his father's love, but the son also has been given life in himself from his father. See, you and I, every single one of us, is dependent upon something and someone else for our life. So we need the right temperature from the sun. We need the right kind of breathable air that's not clouded with smoke from Canada, right? We need all these right things that is just going to make it just the right situation for us to actually live. And we need all these other things from other people. None of us are truly independent. All of us are dependent on all sorts of things to keep us alive, things outside of our control, things outside of us, not, not least of which is God we're dependent on. But God is not like that. God does not need anything or anyone outside of himself to actually live. He is self-existent. He has life in himself that is true of Father, and we see here that the Father has granted it to be true of the Son as well. We might call this eternal generation. You say, what does it mean that he's the only begotten son? Does it mean he's, the, he's created? No, 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 it's not mean created. It means that for all of eternity, he has been generated from, proceeding forth from his father. And you throw the spirit in there, he has been proceeding forth from the father and the son for all of eternity. You see here what Jesus is doing then is he is making striking claims to who he really is. He is saying, I am the son of God from all eternity, the object of the father's love from all eternity. I am self-existent. I do not depend upon others for my life. And I derive my authority from what I see and hear my father doing. Jesus is making the claim that he is the son of God of God. This God is at the heart of our entire faith, and it is a call for us to worship him, Father, Son, and Spirit. I love that song we just sang. It's about testifying to that reality. And Jesus, then, in our text, is not just focused on his relationship with his Father. He's also focused on what that means for you and I and how we relate to him. And Jesus will make several statements that says, okay, if you do not know Jesus, if you do not worship Jesus, 
then you do not know God, you do not have life, and you do not know the Bible. So we can turn that around, on the other hand, and state it a little more positively, because we like to be positive people. And so we say, okay, what, what does it mean? To worship Jesus, then, means that you do know God. To worship Jesus means you know the true God. Jesus says, you don't worship me, you don't worship God. We see this in verse 22. It's a bold statement, but here's what he says. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is as clear as he can be that if you do not honor him, you do not actually honor God. Go back to how we started, the question of, does God accept the worship of all religions? God does not accept any worship that rejects Jesus as the Son of God, the Lord, the Savior of all. Remember, Jesus is saying these things to a Jewish audience that would have prized above all else honoring God. They thought above all else, they were people who honored the true God. In fact, they thought they were honoring God by rejecting this blasphemer and Sabbath breaker named Jesus. And Jesus says, actually, it's impossible to truly honor God unless you honor me. It's impossible to truly worship God unless you worship me. It's impossible to truly know God unless you know me. John chapter 1 told us, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Christ has made him known. John chapter 14, Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John chapter 17, Jesus prays to the Father, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Do you want to know God? Look at Jesus. There's no other way to know him. Sometimes we think, well, maybe I can kind of figure it out on my own. I can get myself there. But do you ever try to drive somewhere without a GPS or a map or some navigational charts or whatever that might be? I mean, that's a terrifying prospect um, to try to drive somewhere without a GPS or if you're a certain age of a particular map that's big enough, it can fill the whole car, and you say, okay, I'm trying to figure out how do I get here. Even, even somewhere I know how to get to, I like putting on the GPS just so it tells me how much longer I've got on the drive, right? Um, we don't like to try to find a new place without some sense of direction. Um, recently, I was uh, flying out of an airport I hadn't flown out of before, and so I was, uh, I was parking and uh, was in the parking garage looking for a spot to park in, and I probably drove around three, four, five times, and I'm like, man, there's no spots available to park here. And then it hit me that I had been driving in circles, and I could just go up one more level, and there's plenty of parking there. Uh, it took me far too long, I'm embarrassed to admit, to realize that I had been driving in circles. But that's exactly what we do when we don't have uh, people or, or things to navigate us, to, to direct us, to guide us. And so we can't even navigate this world, our own area, without some sort of GPS. So how then do we think we could navigate our way to heaven, figuring it out on our own? We need help. We need someone to tell us, to show us the way. We have no way of knowing this unless God himself gives it to us. And he has in Jesus Christ. There is only one way of knowing God. There is only one way of, of, of actually seeing him and knowing who he is, and that's through Jesus who makes him known. God has told us. 
And this is why, that, this is why the woman at the well, when she comes to Jesus, she has a question. It's a simple question, but an important one. She says, okay, well, is it this mountain or this mountain? Which mountain do we worship on? And Jesus' answer is basically, if I could paraphrase it like this, it's basically, uh, neither of them, you worship in me. It's not about scaling those mountains. It's about coming to God through Jesus, the Son. Sometimes we talk about it like a mountain. Like, okay, well, well, maybe there's just a number of roads that lead up to the mountain. At the, at the top, we all wind up in the same place. We all get to God. But Jesus is just kind of completely refuting that notion and saying, no, no, no. There's only one way to know God, and it's through me, the Son. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This should make us extremely compassionate and humble as we talk to those around us who do not believe in Jesus. Because it means that the reason you're a Christian is not just because you were smarter than other people. It's not just because you managed to figure it out and find the way. It was, uh, it was when Columbus sailed to the Americas, he thought he had found the Indies. He was just a little bit off. It's not because we're smarter than other people. It's not because we somehow found the way. It's because God, in his grace, revealed it to us. We are all, like Paul, walking that road to Damascus. And when Paul's walking down the road, he thinks he's honoring God. He thinks he's doing what should be right. He thinks he's, he's doing exactly what would please God. And then the true God speaks to him from heaven, just out of nowhere, comes and says, Paul, or Saul, I'm Jesus. Worship me. And we're just going about our own way, running in circles in our life, walking on the road, thinking, I'm honoring God. I'm doing the best I can. I'm doing all the right things. I must be pleasing to him. And then God speaks to us and says, no, no, no. I'm Jesus. Worship me. It should make us compassionate and humble because it wasn't because you were smarter than other people. It was because God made known to you the way. But it should also make us very clear because we cannot be people who say, well, sure, whatever works for you, that must be, that, that'll all work out in the end. The Jesus thing works for me, but maybe not for you. All roads lead to God in the end. It should make us clear that no, all roads to God, all roads do not lead to God. The only road that gets to God is Jesus Christ, his son, who has made him known. And nobody comes to the Father except through him. See, God from heaven says, this is my beloved son. Worship him. Listen to him. Follow him. And this means that if you come to God in Christ Jesus, if you worship Jesus, it means you know the true God. Do you think about how amazing that is that you know God and even more amazing that God knows you? He knows who you are. He knows your name. He knows the struggles you face. He knows the temptations you endure. He knows the shame in your heart. He knows the successes that you celebrate. He sees you. He knows you. And you know him. Jesus has made God known. And Jesus also is the one who brings us to him. This leads to our second truth. Not only do you know God if you worship Jesus, you also know life, true life, eternal life. And this is found nowhere except for Jesus. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. 
Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is making it very clear. You, you cannot have life, life eternal, life everlasting, except through him. Jesus, as God, has the authority over life and death itself. In fact, this Jesus has the authority even to raise the dead. He says to these Jews, he says, you will see greater things than a man who's healed from being unable to walk. He says, you will see the dead raised. And it's looking forward to the time later in John's gospel, the pinnacle of Jesus' signs that we are looking at. The pinnacle of them comes in John chapter 11, where he will walk up to the entrance of a tomb, and he will cry out, and a dead man will get up and walk right out. Jesus is saying, you will see greater things than a man who is unable to walk get up. You will see a man who is dead get up. The Son of Man has authority over death and life itself and can give life to whomever he pleases. And it looks forward to, to an even greater resurrection that's coming. He says, there is a time coming, an hour is coming, and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live There is coming a time where those who hear the word of Jesus will live, and that time is here, that those who hear the word of Christ and believe in him will live, not just raised to perishable life to die again, but raised to everlasting life, never to die, but always to live. This is the hope of the Christian, and this is only found in Jesus. Acts chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The text is very clear. If you do not know Jesus, if you do not worship Jesus, you do not have eternal life. But for all who do, we will live forever with God. See, the text tells us not only does Jesus have the key to life, he also has the key of judgment. He says judgment has also been given to the Son. So the Father has given the Son the right to to, to give life to whom he wills, but the Father has also given to the Son the, the, the right to judge whom he wills. He will judge all sin, all wrong, all evil doing, all rebellion against him. But he is also the life-giving savior of sinners. The wonder is not that there's only one way to God. The wonder is that there's any way at all. That the king of the universe, we have rebelled against him. We have committed cosmic treason, punishable by death. And the king says, come to me and I'll give you life. And all who come in Jesus Christ will be saved. He says, whoever believe in him. So what, what, what does this belief look like? This is a belief that changes things. You see, Jesus say that those who, who live will come out, there will be a resurrection. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And you might be thinking, well, wait a second, that sounds a lot like it's dependent upon what I do. As long as I do more good than evil, I must be in this resurrection of life. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. In fact, the entirety of John's gospel, the entirety of this section is all about belief in the Son. Believe in him, trust in him, worship him. That's the way to life. But this true belief changes things. It changes the way that you live. It changes your thoughts your desires, your loves, your actions. It changes what you do, what you think, what you say, what you desire most as we grow to follow him. This is a fruit that bears witness to the reality that has taken place within our hearts. To worship Jesus means you know life, and that life produces the fruit of righteousness in our lives. 
We know God, we know life, and it means you know Scripture. If you worship Jesus, it means you're actually understanding what Scripture is talking about. It means you're actually believing what the Bible is saying. There's a stinging rebuke from Jesus. If you jump down to verse 39, he says this to the Jews. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. See, Christians and Jews have this much in common, that there would be few more stinging rebukes that you could give than to say, you don't know your Bible. We prize the word of God as a gift from him to us. There are few more noble desires in the Christian life than the desire to read and understand God's word. And there are few more embarrassing moments in the Christian life than to realize I'm not understanding this near as much as I thought I was. And the same would have been true for the Jews when they looked at the Old Testament. These were people who were committed to reading the Bible and to knowing the Bible. And so sometimes, as a result of Jesus' words, you could hear well-meaning Christians say something like this. They'd say, well, you know, the Pharisees, they, uh, they knew their Bibles. And all it led to was just a bunch of head knowledge. And so we should be more focused on loving others. Well, it sounds nice, but that statement actually misunderstands entirely the rebuke Jesus is giving to the religious leaders in our text. Jesus nowhere ever rebukes people for knowing the Bible. He rebukes them for not knowing it. Jesus does not rebuke the Pharisees for knowing too much of the Bible. He rebukes them for knowing too little of the Bible. He says, you are people who claim to know the Bible and you don't even get it. You don't even know what it's about. Because if you did get it, he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you will have life. And he's like, well, you know what? That's true. Why? Because it's all talking about me. And so you Jews, religious leaders, you're reading the Bible thinking we got it and you're not seeing me when I stand right in front of you. I'm the one it's all talking about. Do you see the claim of Jesus to say that he is the point of all of Scripture? To read the Bible and not see Jesus as the point is not just a matter of a different interpretation. It is a matter of misreading the entire thing because the whole Bible is about him. From beginning to end, from the first page of Genesis to the last page of Revelation, Jesus is the point. This is why I love the, uh, the curriculum that we use with our children in the canyon. Some of you have kids in there. Some of you kids are there as well. In the, in the canyon, what we do with our curriculum is we tell the stories of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Over the course of three years, our kids will get a, a pretty comprehensive scope of the storyline of Scripture. And yet every single Sunday, there is a Christ connection that goes with it that says, this is how this story is telling you about Jesus. This is how this story is fitting in with the larger narrative of Scripture. Because what we do not want is the next generation, these kids, to grow up knowing the stories of the Bible and missing the main point of the Bible. Jesus is the point. And all these stories, all of Scripture is testifying about him. So if you want to, be, to avoid being a Pharisee about religion, the answer is not just, well, don't worry so much about the Bible and focus more on loving people. The answer is this, focus on worshiping and loving and exalting Jesus from every page. Like glorifying him, worshiping him, rejoicing in him. And what this does is it helps locate all of this, all of life within a larger, grander narrative 
We're all looking for a purpose and meaning to be found. And so you're looking for, okay, what really lies underneath all of this that gives meaning and purpose to my work and to my school and to my family and to these hobbies? What really kind of connects all this together? Are these just a bunch of random things that I just do to get on with my life? Or is there something that joins it all together and gives it purpose and meaning? And the, the, the Bible comes along and says, you know what? Actually, all the Bible is testifying to Jesus. All of the universe is caught up in one grand story of Jesus and what he is doing and what he's about. So too with your life. The story that gives your life meaning and purpose is that you are caught up into the grand story of Jesus and what he is doing in your life and in his world. Jesus is the point of the Bible, and he is the point of your life and mine. So the Bible is telling you the truth about life. It's telling you how to, how to live and follow after him. But the question is, do you believe it? Who will you believe on these matters? Will you believe Jesus? Jesus, in fact, gives more witnesses than just this. Jesus says in verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, that does not mean Jesus' word is not enough. It should be enough for all of us. In fact, just in between services, I was talking to someone, and they're asking, what about John chapter 8? And in John chapter 8, Jesus, is, in response to a similar question, says, I'm not going to give you more because you should trust me. My word should be enough. Jesus' word is enough on these things. R.C. Sproul uh, talked about seeing a bumper sticker on a car that read this, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And in classic RC fashion, he said, that bumper sticker is incredibly arrogant. He says, all that's needed is this. God said it, that settles it. Doesn't matter if we believe it or not. When God says it, it settles the matter. When Jesus says it, that is enough. It settles the matter. But he knows who he's talking to. He knows he's talking to these Jewish leaders and that this random guy from Nazareth has just walked in and has claimed to them that he is actually the eternal God in the flesh. He knows, okay, this is, they're having trouble with this. And he also knows that the law said that it had to be established on the testimony of two or more witnesses. It was a protection to make sure that someone couldn't be tried unfairly by some random accusation. And so Jesus knows, okay, they need multiple witnesses. And so he gives it to them. So picture what happens here is like a courtroom scene. And the judge has been seated and the religious leaders, they're, they're the prosecutors and they, they come and they say, Jesus, you claim to be God. How do you plead? He goes, well, guilty, because I am. I said, well, what gives you the right to say that? What proof do you have of that? And Jesus says, hey, I'd like to call some witnesses to the stand, please. So the first witness he calls is John the Baptist. You see this in verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. You notice Jesus says, it's not that I receive this testimony from man. See, Jesus is like, I don't, I don't need proof. I know, I know I'm right. But John the Baptist, you remember that guy? We saw him in the opening chapters of John's gospel. See, he was talking about me. John came 
not as the light, John chapter 1 tells us, but bearing witness to the light. And Jesus says this John was a burning and shining lamp. What was he doing? He was shining the light on Jesus. So John came. He was not the point. He was a pointer. He was not the light. He was a lamp. He was not the Messiah. He was a messenger. But John comes, and he takes the spotlight, and he shines it on Jesus, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's whole purpose, his whole mission, was to point people to Jesus. And so Jesus says, all right, you listen to John? At this point, John was probably a a, a more widely well-known celebrity than Jesus even was. He says, remember that guy? You listen to him. He was talking about me. All right, so we got, we got John. Let me call another witness to the stand. And Jesus calls his miracles, his signs. He says, all right, you've seen some of the things I've been doing, right? You, you, you've heard of some of these miraculous signs. In fact, they just saw him heal a guy who had been paralyzed for 38 years. Okay, you've seen some of these things I'm doing, right? Let me call these miracles to the stand. Let me tell you why I'm doing them. Verse 36. For the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. See, why does Jesus do the miracles that he does? It's to give credibility to the message that he really is the Son of God sent from his Father. Jesus doesn't do miracles just because he feels like it. He doesn't do miracles just to grow a crowd and amaze people by them. His miracles aren't even given to prove that God exists. People at that time didn't doubt that. Jesus gives miracles to bear witness to the fact that he is who he claims to be, that he has been sent by the Father. And so he says to the religious leaders, okay, you know what? You heard John the Baptist. You've also seen my miracles. You have plenty of reason to trust me. But then he calls a third witness to the stand, and this one's all the more shocking. He calls God the Father to testify. Verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So he calls the Baptist, the miracles, and the Father to bear witness to the fact that Jesus is who he claims to be. God the Father, Jesus says, bears witness about me. In the other gospel accounts, we read that that, uh, God the Father at the baptism of Jesus When Jesus came up from the waters, the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Father testifies to the reality, this is his Son. And Jesus says, but you haven't heard him, you haven't seen him, but you can trust his word. And this leads into the fourth witness, and the fourth witness is the Scriptures and their authors, the biblical authors of Scripture. We see this in verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, there's few greater figures. In fact, probably in the the, the whole history of the nation of Israel, there was no greater figure than Moses. It was Moses, Abraham, Elijah. Moses was the, the, the top of the list for heroes 
of Israel. And, and these people probably thought, hey, you know what? Moses is going to condemn this Jesus as a heretic. Moses is the one who wrote the first five books of the Bible. Moses is the one through whom God gave the law, the law in which there's commandments against blasphemy and Sabbath breaker, breaking. Moses is going to rise up and condemn this guy, Jesus. And what Jesus does is he turns the tables around and he says, actually, Moses is going to rise up and condemn you because you didn't even understand what he was talking about. Moses wrote about me, Jesus says. And here I am standing in front of you. Moses would look at you and say, you guys have missed the whole point. Do you realize the absurdity of this claim? See, we, we cannot just sometimes, oh, you know what? Jesus, he's a cool guy. I like him, did a lot of cool things. Um, nah, was he God? I don't know, but I, I got nothing against Jesus. Well, friends, if, if that's the case, when Jesus walked on this earth, you would think he was the most arrogant person you've ever come across. He comes and he says, Moses was talking about me. Who does that? Unless he's right. See, Jesus calls the scriptures and the biblical authors to testify to who he really is. The question is, who will you believe? The words of Jesus, the Son of God, the words of God the Father, the words of John the Baptist, the words of the Holy Scriptures, the, words, uh, the, the signs and miracles that Jesus performed. Is that enough for you to believe in him as the one who has all authority? And our text tells us that if you do believe in him, if you do trust in him, here's the response. Jesus says, these greater works will be done so that you may marvel says that God works so that all might honor the Son. See, the proper response to reading Scripture, the proper response to encountering Jesus is to fall at his feet and marvel and worship at his glory and his splendor. That's what this text is trying to drive us at. This text is trying to drive us to the point where we will worship Jesus above all else. We'll worship Jesus as most glorious and most supreme and most deserving of honor because he is who he claims to be. He is the son of God. He is the one who has been given all authority. He is the one who makes God known. He is the one who gives life to his people. He is the one who is the point of all of scripture in all of our lives. He is who he claims to be. So the response of his people is to fall before him and to worship him, to marvel at his goodness and his glory and to rejoice in him. That's the response of his people that is intended here. And yet our text also tells us the reason why we don't. It's because we so often live to our own glory rather than his. It's in the text. Look at verse 44. Jesus gives a rebuke. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? See, the crux of the issue is that Jesus is dealing with people who are seeking glory from others above the glory that comes from God. They care more about their own glory than they care about God's glory. They care more about the praise from man than they care about the praise from God. And there is nothing that will so blind us to the glory of Christ like the incessant desire for our own glory. We have seen the exalted name of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the one who has received all authority, the one who gives life to all whom he pleases, and so it's appropriate for us then in response to examine our lives and say, whose glory are you living for? Whose praise excites you the most? 
Whose affirmation do you most desire? Are you living for the praise of others or are you living for the praise that comes from God? Are you living for the glory of self or are you living for the glory of God? All of us are living for someone's approval. At work, you're living for the approval of your boss. At home, the approval of your spouse, your kids, your parents. At school, the approval of peers, teachers, coaches. I mean, that's why report cards are a thing, right? And so it's like, okay, we're always living for the approval of others. We're always living for other people to speak in it and affirm us and praise us and celebrate us. What about Jesus? We've seen in our text that there's a lot of people who are not believing in him. He says in verse 38, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Verse 40, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Verse 43, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. There's all sorts of people who reject the name of Jesus. Some do it with great antagonism, like the Jews who sought to put him to death. But many people do it in much more subtle ways. They think, well, you know what? He's fine and all, but I'm good on my own. I can probably figure out another way to get to heaven as long as I'm a good person. I can have life other places. There's other things that are more life-giving to me. The praise of others seems far more real and important and significant and weighty to me and the praise from God. And obviously, this is the reason why people do not come to Jesus in the first place, but this is also what Christians, we on a daily basis fight against in our own hearts, the pull to, to live for our own glory, to live for the praise of man, to live so that others like us and think that we're all special. In fact, this way of living comes far more naturally to us even than taking your next breath. You don't have to think about taking your next breath, nor do we have to think about living for our own glory and our own praise. It comes naturally to us. And yet what Christ does, the one who has authority over all things, is he comes and he reminds us that he is better than all of that. He is greater than all of that. That the voice of Jesus means more to us than the voice of man. That the authority of Jesus is greater than the greatest authority that we can find here on earth. And the goodness of Jesus is better than anything we could imagine coming from others. In his day, Jesus was rejected. He was not the most popular kid at school. He was not everybody's favorite coworker. He was not on everybody's mailing list for Christmas and birthday cards. And for him, it was just one card, just send it one time, same thing. There were many people who rejected him. And sometimes you hear people say, well, hey, you know what? If the church just lived more like Jesus, there'd be a lot more people who like the church. And listen, the church has not always got it right. And so that might well be true. But it is also true that if there were more people who lived like Jesus, there would also be more people who rejected the church. Because there's people who rejected Jesus. Which means, friends, that if you are living for the praise of others, if you are living to be popular and fit in with everybody else, then following Jesus is probably not the way to go. But if you are living for the greatest praise that comes from God, if you are living for the approval of heaven, if you are living to hear the voice of God that drowns out the voice of others, if you are living to make his name great rather than your own name, then that way is found only in Christ Jesus, seen in every page of scripture, exalted and lifted high in glory. And so we echo, as John the Baptist testified a few chapters earlier, and John said, he must increase, and I must decrease. So too is that the motto of the Christian life, that as we see the glory of Jesus, we see the authority of the Son of God, and we hear his voice, have life in his name, 
so too do we come to live for his glory and live for his praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our Savior, and our Lord. Every one of us in this room knows what it is to live for our own glory, to live for the praise of man. Lord, it's a, these are subtle things in our heart, the pride that comes with it, but I pray that you would so captivate us with the beauty of Jesus, your son, that we would care more about what he says than what others say. Lord, I pray that you would bring us to Jesus, that you would lift high his name in our hearts, that we would see him, savor him, delight in him, and rejoice in him. I pray that our lives would testify to the reality that he is our deepest treasure. And may the cry of our hearts truly be that all glory belongs to him. We ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen.